If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you doing, my friends? Thanks to all of you who checked in during my break. You can hear all about what I did with my time off mic in the short episode from last week. I'm excited to be get, getting back to delivering you some of the new content for 2020. After some much needed rest, I'm feeling very clear in my vision for this year. Much of my time away was spent prioritizing. As you probably picked up, I have this tendency to take on more than I can really accomplish. And in some ways, I'm okay with this because if you shoot for the moon and fall short, you probably still accomplished a lot. But I, I felt the need to reassess my priorities as it relates to both what I would like to do and my priorities as a father, husband, son, friend, health practitioner, and of course, the host of this show. Without getting too far in the weeds of all this, because life in middle age can get a bit dynamic at times, I, I just felt a strong need to check back in with how I was doing in my most important roles and make sure that I was devoting enough time and space to them. The first three years of this project, or any project of this nature, take an enormous amount of time and energy, some big learning curves to say the least, but I've gotten through many of these early challenges and uh, I was feeling the need for a time for a reorg and uh, I think it was a great decision. So thanks for sticking with me here and for tuning in. If this is your first time listening to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is a place for you to explore and create your own blueprint for health. Having worked in integrative health for more than 20 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our world come to have an effect on our health. And it is my hope that through the content and conversations you get here, you'll be more empowered and engaged, not just in your own personal well-being, but also in the communities that you live in. Excited to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Ann Kelly here, one of the smartest and most inquisitive people I know in the world of health, or otherwise for that matter, as my guest for today's show. She'll be up in just a moment. But first I have to ask, do you feel this podcast has been a valuable resource in your life? Have you been influenced, inspired, or informed by this podcast in any way? If so, have you become a supporter to our Patreon? If you have, I'm incredibly thankful to you. Your dollars are helping give life to this project. I promise to continue improving and bringing you more quality content. If you haven't, uh, however, and have been meaning to, you can just go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health or click the support link in our show notes on your app. And you can become a supporter of this project for as little as $1 a month. If you, if you find that you listen every week, 5 to $10 a month ensures that we can keep delivering these episodes regularly and developing new content. And this year, that means you might see my face instead of just hearing my voice. That's right, I'm going to be making the leap to video. And remember, this is as much your show as it is mine. So if there's a guest that you'd like to hear me have a conversation with here, you can contact me through the contact form on our website at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. And if you're looking for more daily inspiration, check out our Instagram and Facebook pages for the Highway to Health podcast. So my guest for today's show, Dr. Ann Kelly, 
she's currently the medical director at Holland Biomedical Clinic in Hopkins, Minnesota, just outside of um, downtown Minneapolis. Um, it's, it's a clinic that's specializing in digestive function, nutrient deficiencies, toxicity challenges, and mitochondrial function. And they serve a whole host of health-challenged children and adults. She's also the founder of Nutrition Ignition, combining her experiences in functional medicine, public health, and as an MD to improve uh, nutritional deficiencies, energy challenges, recovery processes, and just overall health improvement. We've done work together over the past three years, and during that time, I've gotten to see not just how much Anne knows, but how she continuously adapts and searches for answers to some of the biggest modern medical mysteries, things like autism, cancers, Lyme disease, and a whole host of other autoimmune-related disorders. In this conversation, we'll cover some of the foundational basics of functional medicine, how the body's healing and energy systems work, and we explore which environmental, chemical, and food additives could be contributing to some of the diseases that both of us have seen an increase in in our practice over the past 25 years. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ann Kelly. to measure glyphosate levels in children or uh, adults. We, there are labs that can do that now. Mm-hmm. So you can measure that through a urine test in addition to environmental toxins. And then you add the genetic SNPs to that. So I am seeing higher levels of uh, glyphosate in children with autism and adults too who come to me with chronic right. illness. Right. So starting to try and put that together. Um, one, of, one of the... Um, somehow I stumbled on this and thought, wait a minute, may, this could maybe be the missing link, and that's bile acids. Hmm. Um, we know that the gut is disrupted in a lot of these kids. They have yeah. what's called a leaky gut. It's irritated. It's inflamed. It's not able to do its job. It doesn't have the right bacteria in there. It has overgrowth of bad bacteria and yeast, and so they don't digest food. They become sensitive to foods. You know, it's really a, a vicious cycle there. Um, well, bile uh, made by the liver and stored in the gallbladder is the detergent in the gut. So the bile is coming along and cleaning up um, a lot of that garbage. Yeah. It's emulsifying the fats, breaking down the fats. It's probably going to clean up the bad bacteria in the garbage. And it takes those toxins that are that are, go through the liver, they're, they're um, changed in the liver, and they're dumped into the bile. It's the bile that takes a lot of the toxins, mm. these chemicals in our environment, they, they are dumped into the bile, and they're eliminated through the stool. And then the bile actually gets reabsorbed. Well, that same bile is able to then cross the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain. It's a detergent in the brain. So it's very beneficial also for some of the processes of cleaning up the brain. So if you go into the science and you start looking at the science, what you'll find are there are um, numerous articles, numerous studies on the benefits of water-soluble bile acids called TUDCA. T-U-D-C-A. Okay. So let's just just call it bile acids, water-soluble bile acids. Lots of um, benefits in chronic disease, such as Parkinson's disease. You know, patients do better on that. Uh, Alzheimer's, colitis, diabetes. They're even looking at uh, developing something that um, for similar similar to bile acids for uh, cancer. Mm-hmm. as well. So when I started looking at all that research on the bile acids and said, look, across all of these diseases, there there's chronic inflammation, we know that. And just adding bile acids back in seems to be beneficial. My thought was, 
why are we deficient in bile acids in the first place? Right. What's interrupting the production of bile acids? Yeah. And guess what? <laughs> you can already guess. Yeah. Glyphosate. Glyphosate. Glyphosate interferes with the enzyme in the liver that makes bile acids. Yeah. So it it's very likely we're going to find that the amount of glyphosate as it's gone up in Roundup has gone up in our environment. And it's obviously it's going to accumulate in humans. Mm-hmm. And for those that are vulnerable, maybe those that have genetic SNPs, a slowness in the production of bile acid to begin with, maybe those are the people that are even more vulnerable. Yeah. And we're going to find that those are the ones when you add, you put the puzzle together, yeah. those are the people that are vulnerable. And I think that's going to be children with autism. Yeah, I think you're right, too. Mm-hmm. Certainly down to that genetic level, there's there are those pieces, those SNPs, which you know have to be precursors on some level. Mm-hmm. And then you add to that these environmental components, which are, when, and when I say environmental, I mean like generational family challenges, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And And some of that stuff comes down to like, how do we process our world and what, what, how, do, how do we see ourselves, you know, and, and how, do, how does our nervous system function in this, in this world? And, that, and I think that has these direct effects on these SNPs as well. Yeah. Because I, th- because I see this all the time with people. It's never, it's never just the SNP. That's, the, that's, exactly. my, that's my feeling exactly anyway. Exactly right. And, and I, think, I think it's, I had this conversation actually on an on a earlier podcast this, this last fall with this guy who has this nanotechnology company and he's working with these companies who are working with SNPs. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, it, we, we got into this whole, so he had, he also had throat cancer when he was, esophageal cancer when he was 32, mm-hmm. which is pretty rare. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, he, he now knows that he has a SNP for this, but the other part of that, so you know, he's been very driven in his in his practice in his business and in creating this business, and he's and he's a brilliant guy, you know. And he's and but he, the 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 conversation we got into was, does 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 everyone understanding their SNPs is that is that a benefit? This 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 is the this was the, the conversation, and from his point of view, absolutely, right. That that makes sense. I'm not sure that everyone needs to have that information for themselves. I'm not saying that information is not helpful to someone like you, mm-hmm. because I think maybe some of that stuff is important. But sh- but I think there are some people that would be worse off if they knew they had a SNP for something that might never cause them a problem. Right. And because we and I have some I have a, a close friend who's been going through a cancer issue, and and he's one of those people because he had a, a sibling with something already. That this has become, I think, worse for him than it would have been otherwise had that sibling not existed before him to sort of show him the path that there is there is a this specific cancer in their family. Yeah, I totally agree. So it's it's but it's a it's a it's a fine line. I mean, that's because because that, you know do, do, we're also just talking about life here. You know, mm-hmm. we're just talking about how do how do you go about in and live this time and enjoy this this space and have the best health you can have within that time period, given some of these genetics? Well, you could ask the same question. Do you want to know how you're going to die? Right. (laughs) Right. There are many of us who would say, no, (laughs) no, I don't. I personally don't. And I I have a similar patient, too, that um, had a, a younger brother die of cancer. She's terrified of cancer, but she's doing everything right Mm -hmm. in her life. 
but there, there was a, an opportunity to do some genetic SNPs on her to help with some of her health issues. She was terrified to look at them and ask not to see them and ask me to interpret them and only give her the helpful information, but not didn't want to know the cancer stuff. And it turned out her cancer SNPs weren't bad. So it was good information for right, her. Right. But if I'd given her the information about them being bad, if they were bad, I think that fear would have been magnified. And you know what fear does to health. Mm-hmm. Your health deteriorates. So yeah. it's a fine line. It yeah, is a fine line. Sometimes information is good and sometimes <laughs> it's not. And, and, and who can interpret all of this information? And then, you know, that's that's the other part is I think we're, we're sort of being forced to interpret our, our own information without very much background. And, you know, I, we see a lot of times people who, who go through something very complex end up knowing a lot about their, you know, physiologically, they, they learn a ton in a very short period of time because they're forced to. Mm-hmm. But not everyone has that capacity either. You know, I think that it's, there are very few people who actually have this capacity. And so, you know, they, they're forced to, you know, allow whoever is you know, in, in their charge to interpret this information. And if we're talking about an aging parent, it might be their children. If we're talking about someone who just really doesn't have a head for this and even is younger, they have to trust the, the doctor or, or group that they're working with. And, you know, in, in any profession, there are people who are really good at their job and, and not so great at their job. So that, that could be problematic as well. Oh, yeah. It's a journey. And and I'm hoping that one of the things that we'll be able to talk about is that it's a journey and you can do it as a team. Yeah. True team, not, you know, real integration, or you you can do it, you know, as a sole professional and, and do your practice day to day. But I think um, it is a journey for the patient, for the individual. And yeah. I, what I find I've always been dri- sort of drawn to is that team approach. Yeah is to work with others because I can't possibly know it all. And I have a set of skills, but I don't have the complete set. Yeah, me I'm too. I'm not the orchestra. Yeah. You know, I'm a member in the orchestra. And what I really enjoy, especially since I've been doing now functional medicine instead of in the mainstream, like at a university doing um, pediatrics for chronic illness, I mean, I had a set of colleagues there and... Um, that's what I had to work with, yeah. you know, and some of them are just exceptional. But I think now that I'm doing functional medicine, I'm creating a different team with a different set of skills. And that, that has been the highway to health. Right. That's what yeah. I think. And yeah. you've been a part of that. Yeah. You know, we've worked with some very challenging patients together. And I don't know your profession, um, but I know what it does for my patients. Right, right. So, um, I mean, you're, you're learning as as you as we go together. I mean, I think that that's the case for me too. I mean, I, I I also think there's there's something very important to to know about instinct in terms of working finding colleagues to work with. I think most of the time, I pretty much know the minute that I meet another you know colleague <laughs> or potential <laughs> colleague. I just have this feeling, and and you know, like the, the fact that you just kind of called me up out of the blue. And, you know, after I, we, we met with Aaron and, and they're like two years later, you yeah. know, and, and, just, and, and said, do you want to come play? I'm at this new place. <laughs> so that's exactly the way I'd love to work with people in general. And, and that, I think, you know, over that and part of the you know, project that I was working on at the time was was really about how to how to build your own networks. <laughs> because both from, you know, I was thinking about it both from the patient side, but also from the, you know, the, the practitioner side, because there, there's so many times where. 
you, you as, as practitioners, we want to have the, the right kind of referral and someone that, and that requires a relationship and someone to know my unique, very odd skill set. you know, for you to have kind of got, gotten enough information to really got, you know, to get to know what I do personally is it's so beneficial to the, to the referrals that I get and, and vice versa. So it's a good fit. That, so, I see that too. It's a good fit because I'm in part a salesperson too. Yeah. When I'm I'm trying to help someone achieve health, and I know that maybe they do have some lymphatic obstruction or something that I think is craniosacral related, I've got to do the sales pitch first. Yeah. To let see if they're open to that. Yeah. And then to make sure it's a good fit for them because otherwise it's a waste of their time. They, if they don't have the ruby slippers that say, <laughs> I believe, I believe. Right, right. You know, if they don't believe, they won't see a benefit, you know, in, in many cases, I think, because, you know, mind is a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I think the, even just, even just, this is a big part of the training that I end up doing with, with my work is, is actually creating the right environment for healing. You know, the, the precursor to, to this kind of work is that stress systems don't heal Mm -hmm. and that stress can be an internal stressor. It could be genetic. It could be environmental. It could be the, the ecosystem of the family. We have to kind of get as much of the story from the person as, as possible, because that's really you know the the way to help them you know fill in the gaps and also and also create their own story the story that i get from people is not always the truth it's That's, it's yes. the, it's the story that they that they know and and over time sometimes i i find that story changes a bit where people all of a sudden realize you know and some of this is 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 taking on more responsibility for themselves and saying well i guess i can't blame my mother for this thing anymore like mm-hmm. this is my mother's passed away and I'm still dealing with this thing that I'm saying that, that, that was given to me. And, and it, that could be genetic, that could be, you know, some, some relationship issue. But you, at some point, people have to kind of go through some transition with that kind of stuff. If it's an emotional issue and a, or a stressor that's just continuous, continuously triggering. Or we have to, even if it's something that was just completely beyond our control that was traumatic, mm-hmm. we still have to figure out how to how to manage that thing. Yeah, and it, what's so amazing to me is that people are not, I don't think they're really being dishonest. No, I don't think they are either. They're just not self-aware. Yeah. Many of us just are not aware of how um, emotional things affect us or some of or the facade that you want, the presentation you want the other person to see is, you know, not the real you. And right. They, they're not truthfully, they're not trying to be untruthful. Yeah. Um, so, it, and, and you know, that is, that was for me part of the problem with traditional medicine is I think there was more time in the past that the traditional doctor would have the time or take the time or have the knowledge to kind of dig into some of those things, mm-hmm. would treat the whole family. So I yeah. had more awareness of that. Um, and now, you know, in the last 30 years in particular, you know, medicine has changed dramatically to be, you know, a pharmaceutical based, you know, a pill for every ill mm-hmm. and uh, see patients in a short period of time. If it's not something you can bill for, then they are out the door. Yeah. And I think that that's led to a lot of physician burnout yeah. and it's yeah. lot, led to a lot of higher healthcare costs because we're not really getting to the, the core issues. I actually... Um, as, at some point, I'm going to share a book with you that I found in an antique store. It's called The Cottage Physician. Hmm. It's It was written in 1898. Mm, wow. It's amazing. But it's written for the family. It's written for the individual and the family use. And it's 
um, interviews with a host of uh, physicians and surgeons to get their knowledge about how can you help the family at home. So it's a, and they write in the book, it's a combination of allopathic, which is considered the medicine that is the surgery and it's the prescription drugs and it's x-rays and things like that. That's sort of the allopathic definition and homeopathic medicine. So even in 1895, homeopathy was part of medicine. Um, That's what they had, the tools that they had to work with. So... This book, I I love to go back and look at this book when a a problem comes up and it's like a colic. How would they manage colic? Yeah, yeah. that's I I want to I want to read it. And the the other interesting thing is that osteopathic medicine, which is really my field, was was much bigger at that point. And in fact, a lot of primary you know physicians, or they didn't call them primary physicians at that Mm -hmm. point, were were osteopaths. Those family doctors usually came from you know one of two camps. They were either you know in that allopathic world or they were in the osteopathic world and or you know some combination of the two or a combination of that with homeopath yeah yeah and 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 it's and it's it speaks to what you were talking about earlier which is that we we really should understand our this the integration of these pieces Mm -hmm. if we're going to treat people well if we're going to you know be be you know true care providers that's the one missing piece, and that's why I feel like I have to have all these these different relationships with with physicians and right. and and different 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 health fields. Even if you think about functional medicine, that's now evolving um, and has grown so rapidly. And, and I don't know if you're you know people truly understand what functional medicine is or is thought to be, but uh, it it is meant to get back to the root causes yeah. of uh, illness. And that can be environmental toxins, that can be a poor diet, that can be exposure to drugs, chemicals, other things like that. It can be stress, it can be um, genetics. Uh, so functional medicine is, is really trying to move away from the prescription drug for your hypertension and instead look at maybe your diet and even some kidney toxins that could be causing that hypertension. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to that cause. But when I go back and I look at this book... I think, well, they were functional medicine practitioners back then. Yeah. They were more interested in the root causes and looking for um, the solution to that. And sometimes it was the mother's milk was a problem because she had a poor diet or she had toxins in her diet. Mm -hmm. And they would take the baby off mother's milk in this in the uh, book and they would put it on a baby on cow's milk. I found that really interesting Mm -hmm. that at that time, sometimes the cow's milk was more pure than the mother's milk. For probably a variety of reasons, yeah. but they 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 also had to fix the structure. So broken bones, uh, mm-hmm. you know, shoulder dislocations. I mean, they, there's a whole chat, several chapters on that sort of approach to healthcare. So you know, accidents and emergencies in the home. Again, the physician is called, yeah. you know, to to take care of those. So I think they mm. they really were doing functional medicine. Yeah. We've just gotten away from it. As physicians, and we and it started probably with the increase in um, penicillin use. You know, we saw these diseases that rapidly disappeared with penicillin, and then vaccines came about. We got rid of some of the really horrible, um, you know, infections that were killing children and adults. And yeah. so, but it's moved way too far to you know. So now that we're we've moved away from the, you know the skills of more of a well-rounded homeopathic and um, allopathic physician and combining those skills. Yeah. So it's, we've become too narrow. So now now I think there are there's a need for that piece back in medicine and yeah. that's where 
that left an opening for functional medicine. Yeah. So I've got my allopathic training, but now I have my functional medicine yeah. training. Yeah. And I really love having all those tools available to me, not just one. And I, th- and I think I think we, we grew to not trust ourselves in terms of what we might sense might be going on with someone, which really pushes you back into the functional medicine model to, mm-hmm. to say, Okay, I think there's there's a, there's something beneath this that this that this you know very powerful you know uh, pharmaceutical medicine is not taking care of, and not to say that that you know there aren't doctors who don't do that every day. It's just that usually the the next piece would be well, what other drug would would I use then? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of instead of thinking about root causes, you just try to throw something else at the fire. Yeah, to, <laughs> to, to put it to out. take care of the side effect. Yeah. Yeah, because that's all you have is a tool. If that's your practice, you know, you you really and you're not trained in the other piece like diet and lifestyle. Yeah. Like I was trained very well in terms of diagnosing strep throat and I can off the top of my head give you all the amoxicillin augmentin doses. Yeah. But I really wasn't trained in vitamin D deficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't wasn't trained to you know, look at that because it was supposedly very rare, and I couldn't tell you the dose of vitamin D. So, so at what point did you? So, you, so you went to. Just want to go back through your history just a little <laughs> bit because that's because I just to give some timelines of all this stuff and how you progressed. But so you went to the U for your the U, University of Minnesota for your undergrad, or where were you going to? Michigan State. Michigan State, that's yeah. right. So I did my undergrad at Michigan State, and then I did my residency at Minnesota. University okay, of okay, Minnesota that's that's right. In pediatrics, and and, and so, so after, how how long did it take you, you know, through your career then to get to get to the point of of starting to get interested in functional medicine? Um, you know, after um, after my residency, my husband and I both he's a pediatrician as well. We both took a year and we went to the. Uh, Virgin Islands, right. St. Yeah, Thomas. Yeah. Maybe that's where I got the. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I I got the perspective. Yeah. Let yeah. me just say that because they they had a hospital there um, that had been uh, uh, destroyed by the hurricane, uh-huh. Hurricane Hugo, and was totally rebuilt. Modern hospital, you know, U.S. dollars, and most of the physicians there were island physicians, so uh-huh. there was a culture and a possessiveness of the practice maybe a little bit of corruption too yeah. in terms of cash basis and whatever. So we naively walked into this. We were the hospitalists. We were there to help take care of the babies um, born prematurely or the newborn nursery and the pediatrics. And so what I saw there was they had this beautiful brand new hospital and we would have respir- respirators, but we had no oxygen tubing. Hmm. Or we would have um, a child that might need a blood transfusion. We could get people to come in and and donate blood, but we had no bags, blood bags, nothing to infuse the blood with. Um, and we we were um, limited to certain antiquated uh, antibiotics that were kidney toxic in our babies that we were fearful of using. But they would they told us that's all they had. Yeah. Until my husband snuck down to the pharmacy and found the supply of the non toxic antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> that they were saving for their cash paying patients. Ah. So we, we saw a bit of that. We yeah. you know, we got to exposed to that. And we, we also saw that there was all this money spent on technology. I I mean I was well aware of that. You you have the brick and mortar here. When, you know, when, when is this? The eighties? And it would have been yeah, uh, um ninety. Ninety, 19, okay. Nineteen ninety. Um so 
you know, you have the, the, how much money we put into that brick and mortar, yeah. but nothing for the infrastructure. And I always felt that if you could just ramp up the public health, the public health nursing, the public going out into the homes, you could take care of so much of this, the child mortality there yeah. and education around what to eat, what not to eat and exposure to, you know, drugs were just starting to become rampant yeah. in the Virgin Islands and, you know, so, you know, helping to prevent some of that. If only they would do more, I'll even take a little bit of that money and invest it in the community. Yeah. So when we came back from there, I ended up doing a fellowship at the university in academic peds and it was chronic illness was sort of my area of um, focus. But I also got a master's in public health at the same time. I think it was my master's in public health oh, that really influenced me. To not think about the individual, but to think about the community. And what I also witnessed in doing that um, education was that in the past, we've had a very robust public health service. So, for instance, lead poisoning is a great example of that. Yeah. When you suspect or if you find a child that is lead poisoning, the public health nurse goes out to the home. They do an investigation. Mm-hmm. They try to find the source of the lead. They talk about, you know, a good diet to counter the effects of lead, things like that. That extension of the physician was is incredibly valuable yeah. for those kind of community illnesses. But over time, the public health system has shifted from that community outreach and some independence there and and more of that holistic approach to health to becoming more of a disease monitoring now. You know, we can tell you when there's a measles case or an influenza case, you know, they monitor. They're monitoring that. And vaccinations are really a big part of the public health system mm-hmm. now. And, and it's not looking at the, it's more of a uh, promoting vaccination, making sure everyone's vaccinated, not so much monitoring for side effects or other problems. So there's been a shift, if you will, towards more allopathic yeah. system. And we've we've lost that huge pool of public health nurses that aren't there anymore, that the system doesn't exist. Yeah. And so I take that, I look at that from a community perspective, and I look now at this epidemic of autism. And I think if only we had had a robust public health system mm-hmm some 25 years ago, when when you first, would, we were starting to see as pediatricians, we were starting to see these children who were developing normally, suddenly lose language, suddenly regress and uh-huh. be spinning. I would have said, this looks like viral meningitis, or this looks like lead poisoning, or yeah, this is mercury yeah. poisoning, or there's something wrong here. I would have said, we need the public health nurse to go out and in, inspect the home. We probably also would have gathered data. Like we would have done spinal taps. We would have looked at blood levels of those toxins. We would have looked for infection or something, or maybe it's the new HIV. Um, But instead, it's unfortunate that I think two things happened at once, which is that whole public health system changed. But also it was labeled a mental health disorder. So Uh. now autism is mental health. So where do those children go for evaluation? They go to the psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist then is working on medications, psychiatric medications that might fit, you know, fix this disease. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's no blood work. There's no monitoring of toxin levels. There's no investigation. I mean, 25 years of data, of that kind of data, I think we'd know what causes autism yeah, it's, by it's, now. It's interesting because I, I feel like I, even in my practice, and I've been doing this for 22 years, early on, I, you know, I started, I started seeing things that I think were... I mean, it's certainly in the case of chronic pain issues, mm. you know, that can very quickly 
be sort of shifted into like the mental health realm if they become idiopathic because the doctors are just not finding anything in the in the MRIs or the X-rays that are showing that, that they should have any pain. But we now know. I mean, and, you know, I think neurological study has become much more intense in the last 20 years. And we now know the way things get stuck in, in loops in the system. So that mm-hmm. it's not, it's not that this, that this, you know, sense sensation or this, you know, challenge that you feel in your body is, is in your head. It's, a, it's in your brain. It's actually mm-hmm. in the nervous system itself. Mm-hmm. And I've, and over the years I've treated so many people and I, I have to explain this to them. And, and the hard part about it too, is that these people end up in situations either in their job or in their family or with their, you know, significant others where they don't understand either why this person is is feeling so crummy for such a long period of time because doctors aren't finding anything with them, mm-hmm. right? And it's this it's the same kind of thing with and, and and we might find underlying, you know, pieces that go all the way back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier <laughs> with, mm-hmm. with glyphosate. There might be there might be something environmental that has just slowly worked its way in, you know, to the body that's also sort of making all this stuff possible. So it's, and, and, and it's, it, so it, it does, I think, I think that's one thing that's changed though, is that we are starting to kind of see, you know, for a while we talked about mind body medicine, like it was this woo woo kind of thing, <laughs> but it, it's, it, it, we should have actually set, not called it mind body medicine, but just, um, you know, I mean, I think the, the, when we talk about mind body, I think more that it's like, there are spiritual crises that people go through in their lives. You know, there are big turning points and big things that happen, losing a parent, losing a child, these kinds of things. But I, I think what we're actually talking about more with this mind-body medicine that w- w- was starting was was really about how how ingrained these these pieces become in our nervous system and in our behavioral ways of, of being in our bodies. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Uh, um, and, and we learn so much from our patients if we oh, pay attention. God, yeah. yeah, because... Uh, just in what you were saying, I recently had a patient who's had mold poisoning, mm-hmm. mold toxicity, and it, it it can be devastating, especially if you're sensitive to mold. So you carry the gene for that, yeah. which she, you know, she's very sensitive to mold. But I mean, she essentially had dementia, you know, just couldn't keep up with conversations and um, really struggled. And as I'm treating that and, and I see her improving, she said to me, I said, how do you know you're improving? And she said... There's a little spark in me that is emerging again that is curious mm. and hopeful. She said, I, I'd lost that. It was yeah. gone. Yeah. I would thought that was so insightful that, it, you know, maybe these toxicities are causing that flame to go out in people. And that's yeah. what, what that's basically what Alzheimer's looks like. The yeah. flame yeah. is out. Yeah. So if you, if you can pay attention, you have the opportunity you know, to work with patients with chronic illness, you can learn a lot. Yeah. Um, but it, it also is a lot of detective work. Yeah. You know, to pull it all together. And I think the one thing that you're really good at, which is why I like working with you, is <laughs> is that I, I think we've lost the the sense that it, that it's our role to as as practitioners to 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 really listen to all these pieces of of people's stories. And and even kind of like handhold that early process with them, where the, where they are struggling, where they've where they've lost the belief in their body's ability to heal. Mm-hmm. And I think there are there are many times where where the the sick person is considered you know the, the problem, mm-hmm. you know by the by the medical establishment. Well, you, it, this is your problem. 
you know, and and it's and and then all of a sudden you you become the victim of your thing, and you don't you you, you don't think that anything can change because you're just in that you you stay in that space, and that's why I say it it's it almost ends up being kind of a spiritual challenge because it, it, it gets down to the belief system of of what you think you know can happen in your life now you know we, we go through we go through a long most of us go through a long period of time from our you know, early years into our 20s without any sort of challenge and when the challenge presents it's 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 very disorienting and mm-hmm. and we and oftentimes we don't have someone who can sit with you and and give you the 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 feeling that you can you can get better Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that that you've really done well with everyone that I've co-treated with you <laughs> is that they they come to me already having this sense that I can I can I can beat this thing and I can get back to who I was. And, and uh, I don't say that just to make them feel better. No, I know. You know, I believe it. Yeah. And I, I um, have. There's an experience piece of that too. Yeah, you've you've seen I it happen a, as I have. Yeah, I think with uh, with experience with some wisdom over time. Um, and continued learning yeah. and understanding and, and, and trying to better understand what, what the multiple factors are that are contributing to poor health. That, that makes a big difference. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've grown a lot. I, could, I feel like I'm still in school, yeah. um, and I need to be because I, I think our environment has changed so dramatically oh, so in much. a short period of time. You know, 80,000 chemicals in the environment, most of we don't have any idea about the cumulative toxicity of all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to be having an impact on us that we're not prepared for. Again, and, and lifestyle too. Oh, food. Our, the way our food is it's gone from coming from Mother Nature and the ground to these synthetic chemicals that have been added, and um, you know, even even innocently things like adding folic acid to the diet to fortify wheats and breads and. Um, some of the grains uh, was thought to be beneficial, but it looks like that's not the case. It's exactly mm-hmm. the opposite. Folic acid is synthetic, and so it doesn't work like folate, which is what we get from food. Yeah. It has to be converted in the liver to folate. So folic acid, I call it the ick, folic acid. <laughs> and so it, you, have an, you have a SNP, a genetic SNP, that is, works to convert folic acid to folate in the liver, but it's a slow process. So if you really uh, have a good SNP that does that pretty quickly, you're probably fine. Yeah, you know, you're not yeah. going to get overloaded. But if you don't, you know, if you're slow at converting that, that folic acid can accumulate, right? But it can bind to the folate receptor. Yeah. It's going to act like the glycine and glyphosate, and it's going to interfere with that. So um, one of the things that we're finding with children with autism is they tend to have that genetic SNP that is slow. They can't convert the folate the folic acid into folate. So mm. it may be there's another problem. It isn't just Roundup and glyphosate that's causing problems blocking their receptors and their enzymes. It could be this accumulation of folic acid. Mm. And and we've known for some 20 years that if you put many children with autism are started on an active form of folate, they seem to get better. Not all, yeah. but many do. Well, I think we also have to understand that it might also be important to put them on an organic diet without grains, a wheat-free diet, Mm -hmm. which is another practice that's been done for about 20, 25 years for children with autism because people were saying 
they may be gluten sensitive, so therefore they do better off of gluten in on an organic diet, yeah. which is true. Most yeah. It seems like most children do, but it could be that the organic diet and gluten-free diet is taking the folic acid out of their diet hmm. and that my, now their folate is able to work better. That's interesting because I, mean, I, I have this feeling, and I and I see it in I see it in my own diet, and I see it and I see it I, and I hear it from different kinds of people, in my practice and friends and everything. There's 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 this kind of dietary shift that seems to happen with a lot of people around their forties, sometimes or sometimes earlier, where they become a little bit their their ability to process and break down things, especially um, I, I would say gluten for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and and any sort of you know broken down sugars, yeah. <laughs> for the most part, um, but also you know also lactose seems to be another one of those things, and even and even potentially animal you know fat and and animal you know products in general seem to be a little bit harder to process because of the I think the, the amount of time that it takes for breakdown. Do you? I'm sure you have a lot of insight into if that's true or why that happens. So, you know, I started down that rabbit hole. Yeah. I talked about going down the rabbit hole with yeah, yeah. bile acids. Yeah, yeah. Everything you just described could be a result of having insufficient bile acid. Ah. Break down your fats, you know, break down some of that, you know, the, the um, gluten and other things, you know, you got to digest and emulsify that. Yeah. So maybe over time, as we have time to accumulate toxins, you know, we're accumulating more glyphosate. Mm-hmm. And the glyphosate's going to turn off the enzyme in the liver that makes your bile acids. So you now become a little bit glyphosate toxic or have a burden, mm-hmm. let's say a burden that's interfering with normal processes. But you're, it's that insufficiency of bile acid potentially that could be leading to then the leaky gut, the inflamed gut, the lack of toxin elimination, the lack of breakdown of the fats, mm-hmm. and then they're not cleaning out your gut, makes it, you get then develop food sensitivities, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And then your brain doesn't work as well either because right. your bile acids clean out your brain. So what do you do to fix that? Well, you go on an organic diet and you eat Take that weed out of your diet because the, because the folic acid would would also build up in your in your system as well, right? I mean that, that would that would affect the biles, right? Well, the folic acid, not so much the bile. It's the okay. it's the glyphosate that affects the enzyme that makes bile acids. Okay, okay. And the folic acid is doing the think of it more as detoxification pathways. Okay. Um, so folate is involved in a lot of our our ability to get rid of um, toxins. It's okay. really important in that. So both are you know bile takes out. The bile stuff. Bile takes out all your toxin, toxic burden. That's the garbage truck that takes that away. Mm-hmm. And then the folic acid helps to carry it to the garbage truck, if gotcha. you will. Okay. So kind of get okay. it there. So both, if both aren't working well, you know, you're going to start to have a bad gut, a bad brain fog, you know, poor function in the body, low energy, you know, tired all the time. So people who have on their own said, oh, I've got to change my diet. I've got to go organic and I'm eating clean, I'm eating healthier. They're reestablishing that balance. I think okay. that stuff is coming back as they get rid of that glyphosate load in their body and the folic acid load in their body and they get more healthy nutrients back in. Because, because and just, just to kind of speak to organic for a second, and this is, this is a challenge for a lot of people they think that this is that we're not sure where our food comes from, and there's a lot of, a yeah. lot of you know this this going on in terms of is it worth the cost to to spend the extra money on this stuff? 
I, I, I'm, I think we will never completely know always where the food comes from. It's just a matter of managing risk. <laughs> see, exactly. See, seeing what, oh, how we can possibly get the best thing. But uh, it goes back to this whole thing with the Roundup. If, if, if that food is grown in the right kind of soil, in the right environment with the right fungus and bacteria and all, these, all the right nutrients, vitamins, minerals, vitamins yeah. and minerals that, that are in there, then that, be, then that gets into the, you know, into the food that gets into the gut. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what ends up solving a lot of those problems for us too. Is that, is that the right? That's, yeah, I think that's the right thinking. And, and I think it explains a lot of, you know, there has been a transition towards more organic food. Yeah. There's been a tremendous Huge. growth in that. And I think it's because people feel better. Mm-hmm. But I, I go back to that whole pu- public health and public health monitoring. We could do a better job of predicting that yeah. if yeah. we would monitor these things, if we would evaluate these things. So I, think, I think going forward, it's time for an overhaul mm-hmm. of the system or a new generation of public health. Yeah. Bringing that back because it's such a valuable tool. It could be a tremendous tool for us yeah. if it's not influenced by you know co- big corporations um, like Monsanto, yeah. for instance. I mean, I think people for years have said Monsanto's not a good company. Yeah. They're not looking out for public health. They're not looking out for us. And now we're seeing that yeah. it's coming to it's coming to light that they hit data showing that. Roundup causes cancer and probably many other things that they, you know, we can't let, we have to create a system where these big corporations do have some accountability if we want to keep them honest. Yeah. Because it, we know time and time again, they they follow the money yeah. and then take shortcuts and then ignore human health. Yeah. You know, lead, lead and gasoline was another great example of that when yeah. it was identified that that was causing lead poisoning in children and high lead levels. Um, Dr. Needleman was the first to report that, and he was attacked by the, you know, gas industry. Yeah, they hired um, scientists to disprove him, discredit him. Uh, you know, he really suffered a, a great deal, and no one would listen. No yeah. one cared about the lead levels in children. Right. Do you do you know how they got lead out of gasoline? No. Lead was gumming up the carburetors. <laughs> <laughs> it was causing knocks. The wow. engine knock. So they took it out. If, and if it wasn't for the auto industry, probably <laughs> it would still be there. That's right. So we haven't gotten to one of the topics I know you wanted to talk about today, and that is autophagy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you and I have both done a fair amount of work. I know cancer is, is something that you're treating quite, quite regularly in your practice and I'm co-treating with you in terms of what some of the effects of, of the cancers on them or just in terms of their healing process. Mm-hmm. And this sounds like it's been something that you, you an, another sidetrack for you that you've been studying. So, and it, but it really, it, it gets back to all these pieces and, and I'm sure you were just led there through functional medicine and what the process of elimination is in the body and trying to, you know, heal from toxicity issues. Right. So can you explain that that process just a little bit? So, and it's, it's, it's sort of a simple thing because I, I mean, I, it's kind of like Pac-Man on some level, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a good visual there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the autophagy is eating up eating self, basically. But our cells have a lot of debris in them. The DNA breaks down, the proteins break down, they get garbled up. Um, And to be efficient, you have to clean that up. But you don't just clean it up, you recycle those raw materials. 
that and so that's a you know that's the autophagy autophagy piece and there are yeah. genetics for that you know we all do some of us clean our house really well, some not so well, you yeah. know, so you can have, you inherit some of those genetic predispositions. So that autophagy piece turns out to be critical. And if you can imagine when the cell is under stress, it's not going to take the time to clean the house when there's a fire outside, mm-hmm. you know, so that what the cell does is it stops its autophagy and it takes its energy and leaks it out through the cell to the outside to try and take care of whatever's going on outside. And toxins could do that, viral load, infections, a variety of stress factors can do that. And it appears what, that what scientists are finding is that autophagy might be um, turned off in people that are developing these chronic conditions, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's an autoimmune condition, whether it's Parkinson's and Alzheimer's or cancer. Um, they're they're looking at autophagy and and trying to target some of that autophagy to help turn that back on, yeah. so you can clean up and get rid of the garbage. And even and I've I've read anyways that it could even be related to just osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. just the just that whole yeah. process. Yeah, think of anything. Well, and there's another process within autophagy. There's autophagy, and there's another piece, a part of that called endoplasmic reticulum mm-hmm. stress. So we're going back to biology now. Yeah. Within the cell, you know, there's the mitochondria, and there's the, there are these Golgi bodies, and then there's this endoplasmic reticulum kind of this labyrinth of um, material, but it's a very important process in that we're supposed to have nice, tightly folded proteins that go into the cell and then go off to do their job in other enzymes or pathways. But some of them are like a wet spaghetti noodle. They don't wrap up and aren't tightly bound. Well, they're not helpful. They're harmful. So endoplasmic reticulum is supposed to kind of screen those guys out and take them and get rid of them. But if you've got too much of that stuff, too much of those unfolded proteins, it's the ER is under stress. They call it ER stress. Mm. And then what it does, that ER stress says, hey, you know, this cell is dysfunctional. You're going to have to kill it. So it destroys the cell. Well, you've just lost a tremendous amount of energy when you get into that mode of yeah, called right. apoptosis yeah. or the death of the cell. So what they're finding is this ER stress appears to be prevalent in conditions like cancer and diabetes as well and many other chronic conditions. So mm-hmm. something's happening to cause ER stress. Well, guess what can help ER stress? Bile acids. Hmm. I know. It, it's a rabbit hole. Well, if you think about it, I mean, I guess <laughs> that... that because because you were mentioning just the amount of energy that it takes to manage all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think ultimately it kind of comes down to that. Like the 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 body has a, a capacity for what it can manage energetically, right? In terms of all of these different processes, and it, and it, what we forget is that it's amazing that it does all these things and is this amazing self healing mechanism. And I think sometimes when people come to see me and they feel better after a session, they think it's me. Mm-hmm. And and I try to help them understand that no, this is this is the magic. You, your your body has this magic already. It, it can do these processes, but either we have to get out of our own way, or we have to you know, some somehow infuse something that helps that process and and gives back some of that energy to to help heal. Right. And, and that's that's a hard thing to for most people to understand that, or to even trust that their body can do that if they've if they've been you know in a in a sort of chronic way for a period of time. Well, and I, I think there's a sequence to that too. I've learned the yes. hard way yeah, yeah, over time that yeah. you know sequencing is important. Um, 
and what you know maybe I'll bring this up because it fits into my functional medicine practice but when I was at the University of Minnesota both of my boys were playing high school football mm-hmm. and they were both linebackers they loved to hit well we didn't we knew that concussions weren't great then right. but we know even more now yeah. but my goal at that time was to pre- help their head, prevent them from having the concussion symptoms or syndrome. Um, and the research would suggest that if you have more antioxidants on board, even if you get a concussion, you're going to have a better outcome. Mm. So my goal was to get more antioxidants in them. I worked with um, a couple of surgeons at the University of Minnesota. One was doing research on berry seeds, black raspberry, red raspberry, mm-hmm. um, those. And he was a cancer surgeon. And what he found was that the those berry seeds were very high very potent antioxidants. In addition to boosting natural killer cells, which go after cancer cells, that was his interest. But he said, these are amazingly high in antioxidants, so it would be a good thing to put in my product or a sport drink for the boys. The other was the um, cardiovascular heart surgeon, Mm -hmm. and he he did research on ribose. So ribose is, is a sugar that can turn into very quickly into ATP. It doesn't have to go through all the long pathway to be, you know, to go up into the Krebs cycle and then uh-huh. beyond to make ATP. It can it just it's like a reserve. And tank. explain why ATP is important. Oh, ATP. Yeah, <laughs> get into my acronyms. <laughs> ATP is like the gasoline, the fuel of the entire body. Yeah. The cells, the mitochondria is um, what makes energy for all of our cells, mm-hmm. and mitochondria basically use sugar, fats, carbs and oxygen to make ATP. And that Which ATP, is our energy. Yep, yeah. So and then that ATP is basically the currency or the gasoline that goes to all the cells and that gives them the energy. The fuel, yeah. Yeah, so that's why if you don't have oxygen, you know, for five, 10 minutes, mm-hmm. you're, you can't now make ATP and you yeah. end up dying. Right. The same is true if you don't have any of those food sources, the carbs and fats, you can't make ATP, you'll die too. Right. So they're really critical things. But this, so this ATP, having a, a quick way to make ATP is going to help your muscles last longer. Mm-hmm. So the ribose was very beneficial for patients who had heart surgery in their heart muscle. But he said, it's, you know, it's, it's basically used in the brain and everywhere else. It's going to be beneficial. So I combined those two things into a like a, a muscle energy product yeah, yeah. to put in a sport shake because I knew my boys would be willing to take, all the guys were doing protein powders at that and time. A, this was the nutrition ignition yes, you know, products that, that. that you yeah. started. Yep, that's where that all came about. And I knew it would help their mitochondrial function. So that's how I started to think about mitochondria. Okay. And began to learn the pathways of mitochondria, and I was so intrigued by how ribose worked well for mitochondria. To hold these antioxidants helped protect the mitochondria, and on and on it goes. So I kind of, yeah. uh, you know, learned a lot about mitochondria. It's a little bit cycle. of a side study for me too, just because I, it, it always for, for me it always comes back to energy on some level oh, in terms of healing process. Yeah. I'm, I'm always looking for yeah. these kinds of things. So so in terms of sequencing, I think this is this is a really important thing to to understand. So. When, if if we're if we're in a in a, a healing challenge, we'll we'll say mm-hmm. it could be cancer, it could be Lyme, yeah, the, the kinds of things that, that you're sort of dealing with daily. I mean, even just this sort of chronic fatigue. We and and mm-hmm. th- this is the challenge with 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 Lyme is that we don't always know whether or not that's actually what's the underlying you know problem. We, we can identify that 
in a test, but that, it doesn't always mean that that's the, the, the whole story. So we just have to work on building foundational pieces for this healing. So in terms of sequencing, what is that kind of foundation? What, is that, what I, does that look like? I think that's where the mitochondria comes in. Okay. So in, in using those products for the boys in football and protecting their brains, I saw their muscles improve, but the feedback from the, the teammates too was I, I can stay awake in, my, in class and pay attention better. Mm. A huge win-win. Mm-hmm. So mitochondria, helping their mitochondria was really beneficial. So when I came to my functional medicine practice at Holland, I brought along those products. And what I found very quickly is when a patient came to me who was in either a chronic fatigue state because of one of these chronic illnesses, mm-hmm. they were trying to spare their ATP and send it where it was absolutely necessary because they... We're low. Yeah. So what I would do is start them on one or both of the, the products I created with, for mitochondrial support. They immediately get some benefit from that. So they get some energy. So they have a sense, a quick sense of, I think I can heal. Right. I'm not solving the problem. But by giving, by bypassing like toxins in particular, environmental chemicals, um, pesticides, uh, you know, which are so rampant, they poison the mitochondria that make the ATP. Mm-hmm. What ribose will do um, is bypass that block and go up directly and refuel ATP. Okay. So, you know, if you're, you've got a heavy toxic burden, I yeah. think as supporting your mitochondria is really helpful. But that also helps to start to detoxify a little bit. But you've got to do more than to eliminate, to identify and eliminate those toxins to really heal that person. Yeah. But giving them a little extra fuel is going to help everybody system in their body work a little yeah, better yeah. and they feel better. And, and interestingly, that, that I, I have the same thing with my work where I, I want someone to actually just have this glimpse into the change as early on as possible. And so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll even discount rate sessions because I want them to come see me for a few quick sessions together. Like I, 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 wanted, I want them to see that, that within a few weeks, you can actually feel this way. That gives you some sense that oh, I you know I can I can break free of this thing. I, there's some kind of support needed, and mm-hmm. you know I think there's many kinds of support that can that can help in those situations. Whether we're talking about you know heavy metals in the in the body or cancer recovery because they've gone through chemotherapy, so so many different pieces to that, or just been in you know have have chronic inflammation issues going mm-hmm. on too. They're, they they all tend to to, to me, you, you the foundational pieces for that are always going to be about the same. Yeah, I, I think the challenge sometimes too is helping people to see they're making progress because. Mm-hmm forget how sick they were. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and and I, I am guilty of this. I don't think I have enough tools uh, that I utilize to help them see the progress they're making. Mm-hmm. I should do this more, but a handwriting is a pretty good indicator of mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, you're, you see somebody that can't write their name or they're wiggly, squiggly, whatever. So doing a handwriting progression would probably be one way to do that or drawing a picture. Is I, I, I do that with a lot of people. I, I have them keep a journal. There are oftentimes when I'm working with them, even they'll get off the table and say, like, I had this memory, I had this image come up for me. And I'll say, I, you know, I want you to try to try to you know carve out a half hour or so after your session, so that you can you know jot down some of these kinds of things because we can, and and those and those images end up becoming quite powerful actually because we can almost kind of see through the story of the images where they where things have changed for them. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, it's really fascinating. I know we know this much. Yeah, you know, a tiny bit about 
our, it isn't just our human body, it's our entire energy around us and between us and, mm-hmm. and how we're all connected in some way. I mean, we just know so little yet. I feel like it's going to be, there's an exponential amount to learn. Uh, absolutely. We're still, I think we're still exploring the, the bottom of the ocean as far as the brain is oh, concerned. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's, it's still so vast. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, there's, there's a whole, um, uh, session in functional medicine on energy and energy medicine. Mm. And it isn't just like an electrical current that you can put in. And I, I'm a big fan of microcurrent for, mm. um, chronic pain and healing, um, uh, and getting energy back to mitochondria for someone with some of that technology. But then there's even infrared lights, the mm-hmm. different color, the wavelengths of light. And we forget that, that um, like even our mitochondria are more like a bacteria, you know, from the environment yeah. and plants and the plants can use light to make energy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it is, it's probably the reason that with some of these lights, um, people that use lights on their body are able to to heal some pain or mm-hmm. heal, you know, it's the energy that their mitochondria And even sunlight to, for, the, for, exactly. for that extent. Yeah. 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 So it's pretty fascinating. Wow. I know. That's, that's this is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like, I feel like this might be a, a, a good point to stop, but I, but I, I still have a lot of questions and I feel like this, that there, we might have to do a round two of this. Uh, you, 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 you have too much in your brain to, to just have you on here for one, for one time. Well, and I, I do have thoughts about the cost of healthcare and how we can bring that down. And instead of focusing on healthcare for everybody, how about if we improve the quality of healthcare? Yeah. And so it's, it's people do, and it, it fits so well with your title. So people have a highway to health. The, these chronic illnesses are so expensive for mm-hmm. families and they're pay, a lot of people are paying out of pocket for them or using their health savings accounts. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a huge financial burden to a lot of people because it takes them a long time to figure out how to get back to health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really important that they do that. But I think we can speed that up yep. and make it more cost effective. I, I've, I've thought about this a lot too. And I think, I think one of the reasons why, why people end up disengaging, one of the, one, you know, one of the issues I, I, was, I, I knew I was going to be facing having a podcast about health is that it's not a very exciting topic for most people. <laughs> Unless it's, there's an aha moment. Unless there's an aha moment for them. But I, I would like to get to people before that aha moment because a lot of times that, that doesn't come until after people have had something chronic happen to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I think I think part of the reason that people disengage is because of the frustrations that they faced within this complicated system that we that has you know been created and it's it's you know it's it's kind of run rampant to a point where we we really feel it, disempowered to even manage our own health within the system that's been created mm-hmm. and I think we need to get ahead of that and the things that the, the reason that I wanted to talk to you is because the things that you're working on really I, even though we're even though what we're talking about is managing things after there's been something chronic, I want to get people into the mindset that these foundational pieces should just be part of their diet and lifestyle, mm-hmm. and that's where the functional medicine piece comes in, and the, and the work that you really would probably prefer to be doing yeah. <laughs> with people rather than trying to deal with things after the fact. Well, and I don't want people to feel like functional medicine is is isolated from traditional medicine. No, no, I mean, no. At least that's not how I practice. No, yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the um, turning pivotal points for me as I was beginning my study of functional medicine, I was still at the U and I was helping to care for a little boy with leukemia who also had autism. And um, the oncologist was consulting with me 
um, because this little boy started on chemotherapy and his liver enzymes were sky high. And I said, well, I think something like milk thistle could mm-hmm. be beneficial. It's a phase one, phase two in the liver, helps with detoxification, and maybe the chemotherapy is interfering with that. And we put him on milk thistle. We just took, looked at it, looked at the safety profile, put him on, boom, came right down. His liver enzymes came right down dramatically. So it was, you know, you don't get those miracles that often, but for me that was another big tug into yeah. a more integrated approach to the care of a patient, especially a complicated patient, is a better way to go. And, and it's potentially even cheaper than some of the panels that you would have to do through pharmaceutical interventions, mm-hmm. um, but it's not covered by insurance at this point. And I think that's right. the uh, that is the other challenge that we face here in terms of well, this it, it's not it's not two different camps, or it shouldn't be two different camps mm-hmm. to talk about you know allopathic medicine and, and functional medicine, but it's it's what's happened as part of our system. And even maybe in our next podcast, we do talk about the new model, which is the Cleveland Clinic. Okay. Yeah. Who has, yes. Yeah. That'd be we can talk about that and how they they they're seeing the benefits of that and the rapid growth in the functional medicine clinic, but how it's still hard to integrate and and you know work together. Absolutely. Um, but that'll take time, but I think it will come. As they find, if they begin to work with patients together, and I think the surgeons in particular are the most interested in working hmm. with functional medicine because surgeons want good outcomes for their patients. And if their patients aren't healthy before they go to surgery, they're going to have a worse outcome. And a lot of that is nutrition, diet, toxins, other things. If you can get that in balance, then you put them through the stress of a surgery that might be needed. The outcomes are going to be better. Mm-hmm. So I, I see it'll come. I think it's coming. Do you, do you think that's because surgeons are more often in private practice and that they have people that that, that they're that the the, the smaller the, the clinic is, the more they want to have to see a successful outcome? Or I actually think it's again they they you know, they're a surgeon, that's yeah. an art. Right. And you want your artwork to turn yeah. out well. So as I said, it was the two surgeons at the U that I work with. Both were working, one was working with seeds, you know, berry seeds hmm. and nutrition there, and the other working with a ribose, a nutritional product. Surgeons have been the ones who've in, um, invented uh, hyperalimentation. So IV nutrition yeah. came from surgeons. Yeah. The nutrition that is going into a feeding tube, that came from surgeons. So I think surgeons understand the importance of nutrition in healing. It's it's interesting to, to, to call it the artwork, you know, too, because I think at at certain levels in care, you and I get to I feel like we get to we get to practice the art of medicine a little bit more. But I think there are there are other places in in healthcare where we where it, it we we don't get to do that quite as much. Mm-hmm. We really we really are almost kind of like you know, frontline and in, in, in battle or something. We're just kind of dealing with things as they come up and putting out fires and, yeah. you know, we, we, we don't get to actually engage at that level. And I think, I think that, that does change the way that you, that you think about process a lot of times. Well, I can use the example of when I invited you to my clinic to come and play. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what I was talking about there is a, electroacuscope is a, a machine that delivers microcurrent and the microcurrent can actually increase ATP production like 500%. So for damage or wounded tissue injuries, um, people with poor you know, ATP production from a chronic illness or something, I think the microcurrent machine is incredibly valuable. Yeah, it's been yeah. very helpful. So I invited Jeremy to come to <laughs> clinic 
And well, after my bike accident. <laughs> but he he was doing cranial sacral on one of my chron- my patients with a chronic illness, and I wanted to try combining mm-hmm. the therapy. So I had I put on a headband with a microcurrent in it, and he was at her head and neck trying to do his things, and said finally, "No, take it off. I can't take the headband off. I can't feel the energies." And I realized that you can't assume these things are all additive. Mm-hmm. I wondered then if maybe your, I, my energy from the headband, the current, was interfering with the current you were trying to correct, and yeah. but it wasn't working. And I think some of it, mine, mine is really more about the, it, because I'm working at the level of the nervous system when it comes right down to it, I'm kind of dealing more with fascia, but when you get into nervous system and energy, there's a big crossover. So I'm aware of energy, There's it's part of my work, but I'm, I'm really more concerned with what's going on at the tissue level. And I think there's something about microcurrent that might really sort of stir things or engage, which is which is needed for certain kinds of things. But it was, I think it was almost, and I, I was getting that feedback a little bit from the patient because I think it's like almost a little bit too much. And I sometimes <laughs> see that now, now that I pay attention to yeah. that, I think if you have a, let's say you have a structural block where you don't have good lymphatic flow mm-hmm. or... Um, or you don't have good elimination of toxins, your liver is overloaded, or maybe you don't make bile acids, something like that. I can move, I can create ATP, and it's going to start to move toxins. They've got nowhere to go. Yeah. And so maybe I am making the patient worse in that scenario. So it's first, you, that, like I said, sequencing is really important. So what you first have to do yeah. is open up those pathways for elimination. Um, and that can be the lymphatic system and that can be the if constipation yep. impairs elimination and so does a lack of bile acid, so does a lack of stomach acid. Yeah. So I think sometimes I have to work on that first or I'm, pu- I'm making them sicker, just recycling those toxins. I think that's important to understand. I think, you know, I, because I, I also do different kinds of body work, I, I'll do massage work as well or lymphatic drainage. And I've just found in my practice that starting with craniosacral work is, this, is the safest way to both start to create some some sense of change in the body, but also gives me a lot of information. And it it oftentimes, if I start there, rather than doing something with more force, I, I eliminate all that risk early mm-hmm. on. And then I kind of see what sort of response, because for there's a lot of people that I work with in my practice, because I get a lot of challenged, you know, health, mm-hmm. health, health mm-hmm. challenged people, that the sometimes less is more. And a lot of times less is more. And I, and I think just starting from that place where they just feel 10% better after that first session, that's, that's a win rather than backtracking right away, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, well, that was too much. You know, I, I start, I mean, I think there's, there's this idea of Bill Manahan, who was on the podcast not too long ago, was talking about slow medicine mm-hmm. and that we've gotten into this idea of things needing to happen quickly, that we want instant gratification for things in terms of our health. But those all come with risks. And I think that you know, what we're talking about here in terms of sequencing is really about managing risk on some level. No, oh, yeah. Bill, Bill, talk about wisdom. Yeah. yeah. He brings such patience and such wisdom to the community of holistic health. It's, he's an amazing person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Anne. This has been great. Thanks for doing this. And I, let's not wait so long to do our next one, please. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. All right. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Ann Kelly. We rarely get to sit and have conversations of this length, once a year if we're lucky, but this is how they often go. 
A lot of winding through these new pieces we are finding in genomics, medical journals, functional medicine, holistic medicine, and healing arts. And what I value so much is how well she listens, as well as her ability to process it all and make so many great correlations. I realize this episode was a little more dense than usual, and if there's something here that you'd like us to go further into, please don't hesitate to contact me. And let me know what you thought of this topic and conversation. You can always reach me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. And you can even just send me a note to say hi if you want to. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.